Um, okay, we are in a found series, and we might have a sheep. Look at that. Bah. I'm good at doing the bah sound because Amelia, our youngest, has all these books with sheep in them. So, bah, there you go. Um, we're in a found series, and we are literally sort of moving towards a more public launch here in our church. And the point is that we would really grasp the Father's, uh, the Good Shepherd, the Father's heart for us, his sheep, and then that we would grasp his heart for the people who aren't here. You know what I'm talking about? Because Wilmington, even though we're in the Bible Belt South, is full of people who have not experienced probably a life-transforming relationship with Jesus. I'm not talking about religion, you know, where you do what you're told. I'm talking about a relationship where you're interacting with the creator of the universe, the Good Shepherd, Yeah? So we're in week two. We are actually doing the 23rd Psalm uh, today. And I'm actually going to do something different also. Since Perry did something different, I'm doing something different. I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to say this together, okay? This is the word of the Lord. This is the ESV translation. You ready? One, two, three. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. That is the word of the Lord. Abby's laughed. My wife, Abby, if you haven't met her, she's by far my better half. I think she's out with the kids this morning. But she's laughed a number of times, and she has said, Michael, we dated backwards. And if you know anything about my story or our story, I went through a seven-year sifting. I preached on Simon Peter. Uh, We did a a whole series on Simon Peter and the sifting of Simon Peter. And uh, if you know anything about sifting... It is literally when the Lord allows circumstances in your heart that humble you. And a lot of times, sifting actually reveals our own sin. You know that? And then at the end of that sifting process, it's what Jesus actually said to Simon Peter. Hey, Simon Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. When you turn, well, he first said, I pray your faith will not fail. And when you turn, strengthen your brethren. And a sifting reveals our sin so that at the end of that sifting, we can literally bow our knee before the God of the universe and say, Lord, it's about you, not me. And it's your way, not my way. And your, your ways are higher than my ways, and I surrender and give my life to you. So if you're here this morning and you're going, man, I feel like I'm being sifted, you might be. And it's a good thing because the Holy Spirit is in it. But I was in a seven-year sifting process. I'd come out of it, and the Lord was in the process of just redeeming and restoring a lot of things that were broken in my own life. Do you have a story? What's amazing is a lot of the people in the Bible, the who's who of the ones God chooses to use, often have a sifting period or a story. 
So if you've got a story, that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to bring to him and go, Lord, would you now take and redeem? Would you restore? Would you heal? Would you make something beautiful about over and out of that which has been broken? So Abby and I, uh, the first time I uh, went to take her out, I went to her house, and I had a pickup truck, and I remember I pulled up, and I'd asked her on this date. We'd only met twice. It's probably good she's not in here. And I didn't even think about that. But I, I walked up to the front door, and I had a letter with me. And I knocked on the front door, and she answered. And you know, when you go on a first date, you, like, put your best foot forward, right? You're like, um, you know, you're going to tell them all the good stuff, Right? I mean, you want to tell them the things that you're proud of. You're going to, like, you know, act like everything's perfect in your world. There's no blemishes on your face or anywhere else. You know, you want everything perfect, and that's what you present. And, in fact, that's really what's happening right now with our social media world, right? Instagram, I love Instagram, but everything is, like, polished and cropped and edited and dusted. And, oh, I had a zit on my face, so we brushed that. I mean, it's like you can do it all now, can't you? And it just looks like, it's like the the world that we present sometimes, I think, on something like Facebook or social media is almost fake. Like, what is actually going on behind the scenes? But oftentimes on a first date, that's what we present. We want everything that's perfect, everything that's good. And I had such brokenness in my life that I was literally walking up to Abby's door with this little letter. It was a one-page letter, just like this. And I was walking up. And she uh, met me at the door, and she showed me around her house. And I was looking around, and I said, um, I was really nervous. I said, Abby, um, before we go, uh, I brought a letter, and I'd like you to read it. And she was like, okay, you know, whatever, no big deal. I'll just read it on the way. And I was like, well, I've been through a really difficult journey in my life, and it's important to me that you read the letter before we go. And she said, nah, I'll just read it on the way. And I said, Abby you've got to read it before we go. And, and if you don't want to go with me afterwards, it's okay. Like, I was, I was really prepared, you know, sort of for that. I, I've got a painful story. And the Lord's redeemed and restored in the most beautiful way. And anyway, she read the letter. But it's because of that first sort of date and that first interaction that Abby says, Michael, we dated backwards. See, I didn't come into this relationship Instagram perfect. I came with a story. I came sort of busted. I came with an opportunity for the king of the universe to take something that had been broken and shift it around and use it for his glory. And Abby read that letter, and amazingly, she went to dinner with me. Still can't believe it. There's still days I look at her and go, oh my goodness, what a gift. What a gift. Now, why does that tie into Psalms 23? Will you put that Psalms 23 back up, Paul? Why does this tie into the 23rd Psalm? Here's how it ties in. This entire Psalm is actually about being weak. The entire thing is about being busted. The entire thing is about you don't have it together and we're not good enough and we can't figure it out on our own and we are sheep. So what's fascinating, even in this, uh, this Israeli context, this Jewish culture, the Lord is my shepherd. To even liken God to a shepherd is actually a total flip. Because in this culture, a shepherd would have been the lowest. A shepherd would have been disrespected. A shepherd may have even had a, a criminal history. 
So to even liken God to a shepherd is King David just flipping this whole thing on its head. He authored this. And then to liken us to sheep. So think with me a minute about someone that you, who is a uh, just commanding leader and somebody you really respect. Think in your mind. All right, you got them? If you went up to them and said, you're really sheepish, you think they'd take it as a compliment? No. No, no, no. In our culture, being sheepish is not really a compliment. But in the biblical context, in the biblical worldview, that type of dependence and humility before God is a compliment, is accurate. It is the way he has called us to be. So think with me about this for a second. Life is so vulnerable. Life is fragile. Reflect with me here a second. We have a number of us in the room who are married, right? Marriage can be fragile, can't it? You've got to feed it. You've got to nurture it. You've got to love it. You've got to honor one another. If for a month in your marriage you decided to get up every morning and highlight the thing you dislike most about your spouse that day, for 30 days, just 30 days, it's not all that long, just 30 days, what do you think is going to happen at the end of that 30 days? It's going to be ugly, isn't it? It's going to be ugly. I actually just last year did the reverse of that in my marriage. I got a little notebook and I started telling Abby one thing a day, just that I love about her. Hey, I love this. And I love that. But see, life and relationships are fragile. Our bodies are fragile. Our health is fragile. If we decided to get fast food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day and drink a Coca-Cola with every meal for the next 30 days, at the end of the 30 days, what would happen? We'd go, oh gosh. Right? We're fragile. Our human, our, the human existence is fragile. And I'm not really sure why, but our culture sort of elevates uh, both men and women who are kind of invincible, supermen and superwomen. You know, everyone would tell you, you don't want to get up and start a sermon with, I've got a story. I've got a history of great failure, and the Lord has redeemed it and restored it. Because in our culture, you actually want to Instagram it up, right? But what this whole text begins to do is it actually begins to talk about the vulnerability and the fragility of life. It relates, us to, it relates to us being sheep. Today in modern day Israel, you have Bedouin shepherd camps and they're still outcast. They're almost like homeless camps. You drive by if you're going from... Uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho and you're driving down that road and you're looking out into the deserts and you see all these little Bedouin camps and they're still outcasts. But what this begins to foreshadow, this God as a shepherd, is King David authoring this psalm and it begins to foreshadow the coming of Christ Jesus because he came as the son of a builder. Carpenter is the way we know it, but it would have been builder in the original language. He came into a little town that's probably the armpit of Israel named Nazareth. Nobody respected the city. He was actually born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. So he, he literally is coming, and he, he, he comes in a form of a babe in a manger. Could God have walked in as a king? You know it. Will he one day? Oh, yeah. But not this day, and not that day. He showed up as a babe, fragile. What if Mary dropped him? 
What if he drowned when he was growing up? The point is, I'm just making some comments to go, life is fragile, and, and our, our existence is fragile, and we begin to start looking through God's eyes, and it's like, it's, it's the context we live in is just different. Like when I was 20, I was way more invincible than I am now. I knew more, I was stronger, I was tougher, I could do anything. And I feel like with every decade that I add on to my life, I'm like, oh man. But it's great because it's producing dependence inside of me and the Lord. Like all of heaven is attracted to our humility, our surrender, and our weakness. I don't mean like uh, victim weakness. Oh, woe is me, poor me, ah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true heartfelt surrender before him. Lord Jesus, my life is yours. My home is yours. My family is yours. My kids, our existence, our finances, are you, you lay it out there and go, Lord, it's yours. All of heaven is attracted to that. And let me tell you, if you write something down in your notes today, you have no idea what the Lord will accomplish in and through your life if you truly surrender it to Him. You have no idea. And I think in truth, there's probably far fewer people that live lives that are fully surrendered than we know. Like there's far fewer people. Like truly lives, they're like, Lord, it's all yours. It is all yours. So Jesus comes and He dies on a cross. He is the antithesis of everything Greco-Roman the Greco-Roman pride, the hubris, the self-exaltation. And he says, if you want to become great, you become the servant. The Lord is my shepherd. There's also this difference in this psalm between want and need. It starts off, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, want is a funny thing in our culture. I want a new boat. And I want a new car. And I want a what do you want? Want ties into, I, it, it, it's not our deep uh, necessarily needs. It's, 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 it's something that's more superficial in our culture. But what this word means in the original language is, I shall not need. I shall not need. To become a sheep requires enormous humility. To get up every morning and go, Lord, I am a sheep. You are my shepherd. I shall not want. You make me lie down in green pastures. I've said this. I've declared this psalm over all three of our kids at bedtime. I just say it over them as I'm praying for them and putting them to bed. Because I want him, the good shepherd, to shepherd them. To touch their little hearts. To touch their little minds. A sheep, you may or... You may actually uh, know this, Dr. Olson, because you said you tended sheep, but a sheep's mouth and its nostrils are very close together. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But because they're so close together, um, if you lead a flock of sheep uh, to a, um, like a whitewater river, guess what happens? They can't drink because their nose and their mouth are so close together that if they bend down to a whitewater river and try to drink, it's like they, you know... It's like snorting water up your nose and trying to drink. They can't do it. So what, what it's literally saying is here is he leads me beside still waters. He brings me to places where he can refresh my soul, where he can make me drink. You know, one of the things that we do here, and we keep saying it, and we'll keep saying it, and keep saying it, but get in a one-year Bible. 
Your tithes have paid for them, your offerings, whatever, they're out there. Grab one on your way out, but get in the one-year Bible and open it in the morning and literally go, Lord, take me by the still waters so that I can drink. Let him meet you there. Let him speak to you. Let him enliven your soul. I love this whole, there's so much here, and I'm driving really towards two things that I'm going to bring you down to at the end of this little passage. But it goes on and it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now for some reason, this, um, this passage is interesting because many people think it has to do with death only. I don't think it has to do with death at all. I actually would say to you, it has to do with the hard spots in your life. That He is going to walk with you, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We could go around this room and we could all talk. And we could all stand up and we could tell the hardest, most painful thing in our lives right now, if we were honest. Some of you might not be honest enough to do that. Some of you might be so honest, you'd go on for two hours. <laughs> but if we were all honest and we went around, we would go, you know what? There are hard places in my life that are valleys of the shadow of death. And in Bethlehem, in this day, when, when uh, David would have been writing this and where he grew up tending sheep, because he actually tended sheep, I don't know if you guys know that, but David tended sheep. And, and when uh, Samuel came to anoint him king, David was so insignificant and so unimportant and so disrespected by his family, they called everybody but David, and they left David in the fields. You know that? And, and Samuel looked at everybody, and Samuel's like, oh, man, this guy's handsome, and he's tall, and I bet he's the next king. And God said, nope. You might look at the outside, but I look at the inside. And Samuel kept going down the line, and Samuel's scratching his head in that Old Testament passage, and he gets to the end, and he goes, is there someone we're missing? And they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, David, little David, little red, they called him red, ruddy, little red-faced David, because he's out in the field all the time, I assume. And they called for him, but he was the least. And God has this habit of using the least using the, even the area of your life that you think is the most rocky and the most rough, when you begin to surrender that to Him, listen to me, He can work through it most powerfully. He can bring that thing back to life. He can fill it with the life of His Spirit, and He can send it sailing on its way. Somebody needs to say amen. amen. I'm preaching better than y'all are responding. <laughs> One of the things I love as this goes on is it says, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. So I've done a little research on this, and a shepherd would actually carry two things. He'd carry a, a cudgel and a staff. And a cudgel is like usually this thing about yay big, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like um, a, a round little handle. And then on the end, it's got a knob. And it's literally for taking and just bonk to an enemy that's coming in to steal sheep, to a wolf or a lion, to a snake that's in the wilderness, to a bear. There were even hippopotamuses in Israel in this day. There would have been crocodiles. What was alive and roaming in Israel in the Bible days is very different than what was there now. But they'd carry a cudgel, and that cudgel was for an offensive attack. And then you had this staff, and the staff has a crook around the end. And I'm just going to use Matt Ham because he's sitting up here close. But when you have a sheep that's wandering off, that's for like hooking that little sheep and bringing it back. Always going after the one. You get the heart of God. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks in Luke 15. But he's always going after the one. If you feel today strayed, if you feel isolated, if you're like, I don't even know if God's real. 
I feel so lost. I feel so far. I have got good news for you because we have a good shepherd that is coming after you. Now, he will come after you, and he will come after you, and he will come after you, and when he gets you, he'll say, follow me. And when he says, follow me, he's going to turn and roll. And guess what your job is? To follow him. It's fascinating in this passage because as we look at it, there's several things that are implied. There's actually responsibilities um, that that the, the sheep would actually have. They have a responsibility to follow, don't they? They have a responsibility to lay down in green pastures. They have a responsibility to drink from still waters. And way late in this passage, they actually have an, a, a responsibility to feast when God says feast. It's funny how we as sheep, we want to resist the, we want to resist the seasons of feasting just like we resist the seasons of plenty. I'm sorry, not plenty, of, of lack, don't we? We always fight God. We always resist. I don't know why, but I see that in my own heart again and again. So you've got a cudgel and you've got a crook that are to defend and to protect. I think there's another implicit point here that ought to be pointed out, and that is there's a relationship of the sheep to the shepherd, and it's, it's just sort of implied throughout this that the shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. It's foretelling the coming of Christ Jesus. Like it's declaring from the Old Testament. And for any of the people who were waiting and watching for the good shepherd to reveal himself in the Messiah, they would have recognized Jesus. Two other things that I think are fascinating as you get down in here. It says, uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. With oil. Two things. First thing is at night when the shepherd would have set up the fold. um, So if they're out in the wilderness, this might have been a fold of like bramble bushes, big circle with one little gate and the sheep would have all come in. It could have been a cave with some bushes or fence-like things around it. Again, one, one entrance, one exit. Um, It could have been even in someone's home. There were times when people would have half a dozen sheep in their home and they'd help actually heat the house. Kind of a stinky way to heat the house, probably. But they'd be going into this fold and at every night the shepherd would literally stand by that door and he would watch the sheep coming in and if he found a wound on the sheep, what do you think he would do? Cover it with oil. A little like our modern day Neosporin, maybe. Cover that wound with oil. The other thing that I think is fascinating here is in Eastern hospitality, three things would happen when you came into a home. The first thing that would happen is I would prepare so much food for you that you could never eat it all. And that was a way of saying, I love you, I'm here to serve you, I want to be generous with you. Like here in the West, uh, wealth is shown when we have like these big rolling hills and fences around our house. You know, that's the way we like to show wealth for whatever reason. I have no idea why. But in the East, wealth is shown and and graciousness is shown and generosity is shown when you bring people in and you sit at a big table and there's so much food you couldn't eat it all in a week. That's how you showed Eastern hospitality. And the other thing that they would do is they would actually take oil and anoint your head and anoint your hair. Showers aren't very common in the Middle East. If you've ever traveled through Israel, there's not a lot of water. And you'd actually anoint the head with oil. So it's literally saying, I anoint your head. I'm taking care of you. I'm showing generosity. 
And then the last thing that would happen is they would literally take a cup in Mideastern, uh, Middle East hospitality, and oftentimes this is so unusual to me because if a waiter or waitress did this to me at a restaurant, I, I don't think I'd be happy. I, I, let me rephrase that. I would definitely not be happy. But in Eastern hospitality, they come and they're going to pour this cup, and it was sometimes um, it was a sign of generosity and blessing to pour and to keep pouring until what happens? It overflows because it's saying blessing and generosity and love. When I was younger and people would sign their letters blessings, I'd always be like, nah, that's religious. And sometimes it is. But when you begin to understand the blessing of God, the blessing of heaven, the blessing of the Lord Jesus, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, that he wants to actually take your cup and you're like, just give me a drop. And he's like pouring until it overflows. That's his heart. The last thing that I want to point out before I come to my two applications is this last one in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Do sheep have teeth? Well, let me rephrase that. Do sheep have sharp teeth? No. You think they can protect themselves with teeth? No. Do sheep have fangs? Do sheep have claws? Do sheep have a loud bark or a growl or a roar? They're really defenseless. So when an enemy comes, what do you think a sheep does? Who said that? That's it. A sheep runs. So what David is actually saying here, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He's saying the enemies are not going to be coming after me. He's saying God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace is going to chase me down all the days of my life. I'm not going to run from fear. I'm not going to run from depression. I'm not going to run from somebody who hates me. I'm not going to run from somebody who is after my life. I am not going to run from my own insecurities because God's goodness and His mercy is the only thing that is going to chase me all the days of my life. And then it ends right there, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A believer who is rather nominal in their walk calls out to God in an emergency, right? You get in a tough situation. Even non-believers, this is crazy to me. You get in a car wreck and people go, oh, God. It's usually taking his name in vain. Or, oh, Jesus, you know? They're not even talking to him. They're just like almost cursing him. But even non-believers, everybody, when something negative like that happens, they're going to like shout out, oh, God. But for us as believers, we're not just calling out in an emergency. We're actually learning to dwell. We're learning to abide in the house of the Lord. And one of the things I love that we're meeting in a school, one day the Lord will take us to a building, I'm sure. But right now I am like drinking in that we are meeting in a school because it reminds us that the house of the Lord is no longer a temple or a tabernacle, but it's who? Raise your hand. The house of the Lord is me, is you, is us. And that begins to change the way that you look at the person in the supermarket line. And your neighbor at work, 
or your literal neighbor who's bothering you. It begins to change when you start to go, okay, the Lord is dwelling in me and I am dwelling in him. And he has called me to go and be outward focused, sharing the gospel with the people all around me. You know what changes a city? Is not a great church with the best preaching or the best worship or the coolest building or the hippest program or the most tattoos on my arms or whatever. What changes a city is when the people of God rise up and begin to understand who the good shepherd is and that they actually carry him in their daily lives. You want to see a city change? Because I'm living here and I think you are too. And in 10 years and in 20 years, I want to look back and go, this city is not the same. Not because of Michael, not because of Saltbox, not because of Perry, but because people of God actually rose up, understood who the Good Shepherd was, and carried him into every aspect of their life and their neighborhoods and their work. That is what shifts a city. That's what changes people. This passage requires two massive things of us. And Perry, if you'll slide back up here. I think I might have a point up there, Paul. There are two. two. I want number one. Thank you. This passage requires that we make a great decision. Now, you can walk out of here today and go, I don't know what that bald guy was talking about. But I've got news for you. He's the good shepherd. Whether you believe it, whether you receive it, or whether you walk out of here and kind of close your heart, he is the good shepherd. So what you are faced with this day and every day from now until you breathe your last, and I assure you, you will breathe your last one day. We all do. Some silly person said death and taxes. But you face a great decision. A decision is whether or not you are going to truly give your heart this day and every day to the Good Shepherd. Whether you're going to lay it down, whether you're going to walk with Him, whether you are going to be sheep-ish, whether you're going to be dependent. We heard Jay Corpening last week tell a story about somebody in a hospital where he was dependent. He heard the still, small voice of the Lord and he obeyed to pray with the Lord. We face a great decision. And the second thing we face is a great dependence. I'm not sure about you, but for me, I find our culture driving us towards independence, towards the strength of my own right arm, towards pulling myself up by my bootstraps. When I grew up, there were all these Marlboro Man commercials. They don't even exist anymore because we've outlawed smoking, I think. But remember the Marlboro Man? There's this like elevation of the invincible one, the superhero. And there's some of that that's good because it can point us to Christ Jesus. But there's a great dependence where you come to the point where you go, I can't do it without you. And I cling to you, the good shepherd, the author and the finisher of my faith. And I think the question for us today, this day and every day, is are you willing to make that great decision to make him the good shepherd of your life? And are you willing to live a life out of great dependence where you lay it all down?
We could probably go around the room if we were all courageous enough and honest enough, and we could probably stand up if we were totally 100% authentic and all list an area that isn't fully surrendered to Jesus. Couldn't we? I can. Oh, Lord, I gotta, I hear you there. That's not condemnation, but it's an invitation into a greater surrendered life. And I'm telling you, listen, listen, listen. You have no idea what the Lord will accomplish in and through your life when you fully surrender it.